So I had titled the message, Our Capable God. Um, I, I guess those are the right words. Those aren't the words we're going to focus on as we, as we get through this. Uh, but you'll, you'll see how they fit in. To start with, I don't know if I have a... We, we can look at Revelation 4, chapter 8. You only have to turn there because we're not going to stay there. I'll read it to you. Revelation 4.8 says, And the four living creatures, each one of them, having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is to come. So God's primary attribute is holy. And any time they say something three times, that's really stressing it a lot, okay? Holy. But notice how they identify God in that verse, not just by saying holy, 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 but they identify him as the Almighty. In Old Testament Hebrew, that's the word Al Shaddai. And it just means the Lord or the strong one, the mighty one, almighty, the almighty one. And it's a superlative. That is to say, we know what a word is, what its comparative is, and what its superlative is. In our language, we say fast, faster, or fastest. When, when our kids were being homeschooled, and it's a good thing they're not here, they were little when Christy was teaching them, superlatives, and uh, they had the word seek, like seeking you shall find. So one of my kids, I don't know which one, decided it was uh, seek, suck, suck. I'll always remember that. And they had another one too that was funnier, but I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. Anyway, it's a superlative. God is the strongest, God the most powerful God who has the prevailing strength. And the term itself, almighty, has the idea of conquering power. It's overpowering. It's a strength, a power that cannot be withstood. So with that power, he is all capable. Hence, I titled the sermon, Our Capable God. He's all capable, has all capability. He can do whatever is doable. He can do whatever he wills to do. There isn't anything that is doable that he can't do, and there isn't anything that he wills to do that he can't do. Now, having said that, people will argue because there is something God cannot do, and he cannot go against his character. Scripture says he cannot lie. Okay? So, apart from breaking his own perfect code, he can do anything he wants besides that. And having done whatever it is he's going to do, he's not tired. After having expended energy, he's never lost any energy. He's never weary, never tired. We, we can conceive of things to do things that we want to do. 
and just either we don't have time or we, we're not capable. We just can't do it. God has power that is equal to his will. Isaiah 46.10 says, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. He will accomplish whatever it is he desires to do, whatever his will to do. He created the world out of nothing, ex nihilo. So the, the key words that we're going to focus on tonight, and it sums up this short introduction, is that he is able. And this phrase, he is able, is found seven times in the New Testament with reference to God or Christ. So all we're going to do tonight is look at these seven verses, short verses, and uh, we'll go from there. So to be able, defined anyway, to have power, whether by virtue of one's own ability and resources, or of a state of mind, or through favorable circumstances, or by permission of law or custom. To be able to do something, to be capable, strong, and powerful. So let's look at these seven verses. You can turn to each one as we go. We're not going to spend a lot of time on each one. Each one of these verses could be a whole sermon. I mean, there's a lot in here, but we're going to just look briefly at them. Romans 16.25 will be the first one. This is actually part of the doxology of the letter of Romans, letter to the Romans. 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. Okay? So Christ is able. In chapter 1, in verse 11, we see that, we read there that Paul was hoping to visit them, hoping to go to Rome, to see the Romans, to visit their church. And he wanted to impart some spiritual gift to them. That is, he wanted to use the gifts that he had been given for the purpose of edifying the church, for building the church up. The Greek word for strengthen, if you look at verse 11, which we did not read, the Greek word there for, that's translated strengthen, in 1 verse 11, is the same word translated established in 1625. So the Apostle Paul was confident that he could do for his readers what they needed. Paul wrote, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Paul knew, he went to Rome, and he used his gifts that God is the one who was able and capable to bring fruit from his labors. The gospel is God's chief tool to that end. 
where Paul says, my gospel, here in this verse, identifies what he had been preaching widely, wherever he went, and what he expounded on in this epistle. And the preaching of Jesus Christ is just another word, another way to say the same thing. But it's, it stresses the, sub, the subject of the message is Jesus Christ. So we can be confident. What can we take from this verse then for ourselves? We can be confident that as we share the gospel, or any time we impart our spiritual gifts to anyone, that God is able to use that according to his will. There are people who are, I mean, nice people, and I know people like this, they're very results-oriented. oriented. Okay? They want to see the results of their work. We don't always see the results of our work in spiritual work. We impart our gift we have, we share the gospel with somebody. We don't know how God is going to use that in their lives. We may never see this person again. He may get saved, he may not. But we trust that God is able to do with that according to his will. We just need to be faithful to, again, use our gifts that God has given us. Next verse, then, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18. Hebrews 2, 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So he came not only to save us, but he came to sympathize with us. In chapter 4, verse 15 The writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So if you're going through a tough time, or if you're having difficulty in your own life, if you're struggling with something, you're battling, maybe you're trying to overcome a sin in your life, don't ever think that Whatever it is that you're going through is unique to you, to your situation. Our Lord God, our Lord Jesus, knows all about those temptations. And he will come to our aid. We can remember 1 Corinthians 10.13. Which I was going to try to quote it, but I I didn't. uh, I think it's a memory verse. I'll read it. That way I don't mess it up. 1 Corinthians 10.13. Some of you may have memorized this verse. It was one of our memory verses way long time ago when we first got saved. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. He makes us able as well. But temptation is common to man. If you're tempted, don't think that uh, nobody else has ever gone through what I'm going through. 
The Lord Jesus knows all about it already. He understands it. He knows exactly what our need is, and he knows how to help. And he is able, according to that verse. If you're still in Hebrews, you can turn to our next verse, which is uh, chapter 7 and verse 25. Hebrews seven twenty-five. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The therefore in that verse refers just back to verse 24 that says, but Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. So he, he holds his priesthood permanently. He's able to save forever those who draw near to God. He always lives to make intercession for them. Human priests died eventually, like we all do, and they were no longer able to keep that office. It's kind of like when you're, when you're working with somebody at a store because you're going to buy something, and there's a long process, and when you're finally ready to pull the trigger and buy it, you find out the guy's not working there anymore, and you have to start all over with somebody else. Not so. Christ is always there. He always lives to make intercession. Your high priest, Jesus, never loses you. There's no handoff to somebody else. And there is never a point in time when Christ is not keenly aware of your circumstances and he makes those circumstances known to the Father. That's what a priest does. He intercedes. And that's what Christ does on our behalf for the, to the Father. He makes our circumstances known. Next passage, next verse, Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. 21 says, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. So the basis for Paul's confidence here, in context of uh, this chapter in Ephesians, confidence that God is able to do far beyond what he had prayed for, or even, could even imagine, was God bringing the Jews and the Gentiles together. These were two, this is two groups of people that were just, you know, like water and oil. They didn't mix. The, the Jews wanted nothing to do with the Gentiles because they were the chosen people, the chosen nation. And as far as they knew, God was their God and nobody else. But with God's provision of love, both groups could function harmoniously together in the church Glory would come to God in the church for uniting these two previously irreconcilable groups and for enabling them 
to love and work together as fellow members of the same body. We sang a hymn this morning, and I made a note of it, but I didn't write down the hymn 218. And there was one line. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Verse 4. O come, desire of the nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. All peoples, one heart and mind. Which is what he did. He, he was able to bring everybody together that was previously not together. The goal of Paul's prayer, this verse follows Paul's prayer in verses 14 to 19. And the goal of that prayer is that we might experience what's what's said is going to happen in verse 20. So we might come to the place where the power of God within us is doing things that exceeds our imagination. In that prayer, he prays a series of great truths. We should read it, 14 to 19 then. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. He prays great truths, spiritual realities will take place in our lives that will cause us to exude the power of God, which ultimately, in verse 21, which we read, will result in all the glory going to God. Anybody who's been part of our building project will tell you that God did exceedingly abundantly above and beyond anything we could even think or ask. And that has been the most amazing part of this whole process. We, we would pray. Something would come up in the process. We would pray about it like, Lord, we need to have this done by, by Friday. Well, it was done Wednesday. You know, and that happened over and over and over again through this whole process. It was amazing. It really was. <laughs> it was above more than we could even ask for. And he did. When, when we walked around there Thursday night, most of you people were there, some of you. Um, and we went to the, the back building, which is only 3,200 square feet compared to 10,000. If we had bought a piece of land and built it, we would have only ended up with a building that was roughly the size of that smaller building in the back, maybe a little bigger. You know, but we would have never had you know, almost 14,000 square feet, which is what the Lord gave us. So he did it exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask for. We prayed a lot, and the results of those prayers always exceeded the content of them. We serve an awesome God.
Turn now to 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8. Second Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. So in chapter 9, here in Second Corinthians, we see Paul preparing for a visit to Corinth. And the Corinthians had promised a large gift to Paul's ministry. So Paul sent some of his co-workers ahead of him, Make sure everything was in order regarding the gift. Such giving need not produce anxiety in the giver, even if he or she is giving away much. The Corinthians had promised a large gift, so people were really going to have to extend themselves, you know, in order to meet the goal that they had set. God demonstrates his love for cheerful givers by giving them more grace and more opportunity. He also makes us contented, sufficient in that sense. However, we always need to remember that God is the one from whom everything we have comes. When we see the word able in this verse, that Christ or God is able. We can't come to the conclusion that he can, but he may not. It should not lead us to the conclusion that God can, but he may not. The righteous person who desires to give to the needs of others will not lack opportunity to do so because God will make this possible for him or her. All right, let's move on to next passage, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 1. In verse 12. Somebody made this into a song once. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Tom talked about that day this morning in his uh, sermon from First Thessalonians. So Paul had suffered imprisonment and all the discomforts associated with it because of his work preaching the gospel. In 2 Corinthians, you don't have to turn there. Chapter 11, 23 to 24, Paul said, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, 
often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Verse 26, I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. His life as a missionary was not necessarily all that easy. He suffered a lot. But nevertheless, he was not ashamed of the gospel or of himself. He wrote that, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Because his confidence lay in the person of God. He believed that God is faithful. And that God would protect something that Paul had placed with God for his protection. And preserve it until that day that he would see Christ face to face at the rapture or at death. So what, what did Paul entrust to God? His life. His life in time and his life in eternity. No matter how difficult Paul's imprisonments were, his sufferings, he knew the result of all that was in the hands of God. Last verse, Jude. The book of Jude doesn't have any chapters. Verse 24. Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Our confidence rests in God's ability to keep us safe and faithful. The power of Christ will keep the sincere believer from falling into the temptation of apostasy. Apostasy literally means a, a departure, a falling away. So this statement here, he's able to keep us from stumbling or falling away, is essentially akin to perseverance of the saints. If you're a believer, then God will keep you make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. Not blameless because we never did anything wrong, but blameless because Jesus took all the punishment for it. The Greek word translated stumbling here implies the results of tripping up as well as the fall itself. Blameless, we talked about having no justifiable ground, justifiable ground of accusation. When the blameless person sins, he confesses and forsakes his sin. What's in view here, I think, is the standing before the judgment seat of Christ that we read about in the book of Revelation. When we stand there as a believer, there is no justifiable ground of accusation against us. God will inevitably keep all believers from stumbling, either doctrinally or morally. We are eternally secure because Christ is able to make us that way. And that's what he did for us. 
That is all I have for tonight. I told you it was short. I hope it was encouraging that God is able and Christ is able. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this time. We thank you for your word, scriptures. God, we thank you. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are able. We really only scratch the surface of your character and your attributes. But we know that uh, you are able to keep us from stumbling. We know that you are able to use the things we do for your glory. We thank you for the protections we have. We thank you that ultimately we will stand before God blameless and prepared to enter into eternity with you. We thank you again for these words tonight. In Christ's name, amen.